It seems that there are moments in sport that, while rare, find a way of universally resonating. Tying both fans and non-fans together, sweeping up even the most apathetic viewer. One that immediately comes to mind is the game-winning goal scored in overtime by Sidney Crosby at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, winning the gold medal in front of a nation looking nervously on. Another one equally significant for me is from last summer's Olympic Games, watching as racewalker Evan Dunphy battled for third with about a kilometer left in the 50-kilometer racewalk event. He appeared to give everything that he had within himself, and even when that medal was out of reach, he finished while looking on the verge of collapse. Looking back, it's what I imagine the Greek soldier Philippides looked like as he completed his famed journey from the Battle of Marathon. It's with that imagery I tell you that Evan joins us on the show this week to talk about training, racing, finding balance, and even a little bit about the business side of things. You're listening to The Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. So obviously 2016 was a huge year for you. Uh, and we'll get to that in just a second. I want to talk about where you're, where where we're talking to you right now. Where are you in the world? So currently, uh, I'm in Canberra, Australia. Been here for about three about three weeks now. Um, we're settling in. We're doing a high fat diet intervention. Um, so I've been eating nothing but cheese and uh, avocado and nuts for the last three weeks basically and uh, getting ready to see what kind of effect that has on on my performance. If I'm not mistaken you've actually been there before to do some some testing kind of similar to this. Um, just who's doing the research and uh, and maybe give me a brief overview. Yeah absolutely so I was here last year uh, for two camps we did so the study we're doing is called Supernova and basically we have three groups uh, one group on a high fat diet so you got 80% of your calories coming from fat uh, 15% or so coming from protein and about 40 grams of carbs per day, which is the equivalent of about a piece of bread and, uh, and some honey on it. And so it's, it's quite uh, radically different than anything most people have tried at home. Um, so I did that last year in November for three weeks. Uh, we did some pre-testing. So we did a 10K time trial, some 25K tempo stuff where we're measuring oxygen um, auction use and uh, a few other VO2 max testing and, and DEXA scan for body fat and all this stuff and go on the diet for three weeks and retest at the end and see what's happened. Um, we got some fascinating data out of last year's study. Uh, there's about 25 elite race walkers that participated and the study was actually just posted by Louise Burke. Um, so she's the head, head researcher here at the, for sports nutrition. She's one of the best sports nutritionists in the world and uh, published that study about a week and a half ago. So it's out there. It's public domain. It's free to read. Um, it's a great little piece of research. It's really helping transform the way we view um, the high-fat diet in terms of there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there of people saying it works. And we were pretty, we were able to prove pretty, pretty clearly that it actually highly impaired our ability to perform well. Hmm. But this year... So the fascinating thing we saw from last year was that after coming back onto carbs, we raced, uh, so I raced uh, 50K about 10 days later after coming back onto carbs, and I crushed it. I, I set what was then the Canadian record um, in a race where I felt pretty comfortable the whole way, and just we had another couple other guys who had done the diet all raced really well, and 
So it got us thinking, okay, well, maybe there's something, maybe this diet thing is similar to altitude. You know, you go up to altitude, you get some adaptation. You still won't be as good at altitude as you would be at sea level, but you come back down to sea level and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're way, you're way further ahead than you were when you started. Um, so that's what we're investigating now. So we're doing the same whole thing, diet intervention, three weeks on the diet, post-testing on the diet. But then we're doing another week where they're going to continue to measure us once we go back onto carbohydrates. And then we're going to do the post-testing again and see if we're ahead of where we were when we started. So it's, it's a really fascinating idea. Nobody's really suggested uh, the diet in this way before to be used like this. So it could be pretty seminal research and could change you know, a lot about how we view sports nutrition. So it's fun to be a part of. Oh, that's that's really fantastic. Do you know, is there a lot of contact with uh, perhaps, you know, some Canadian nutritionists? Does it, does this trickle down and, and come back to uh, to be used on, on other Canadian um, athletes? Yes. Yeah, so, um, well, Trent Stellingworth um, and Louise Berker work very closely together. Um, they have a very good working relationship. So um, I, uh, you know, Trent would be my nutritionist, I'd say. Um, but a lot of stuff we do... Um, we work with Louise together on that sort of thing. So uh, everything she's doing, he's in the loop for. Everything he's doing, she's in the loop. We have a couple. We actually have one of uh, our dietitians here is from uh, back home. She works for the Canadian Sport Institute, and so she's here helping out. And we actually adopted one of the girls who was our nutri- one of the nutritionists from the study last year. We hired her in Vancouver um, to work as a nutritionist at the Canadian Sport Institute. So. There's a lot of overlap in uh, in this study with Canadian contingent, and of course myself being here and Matt Billado, our other 50k walker, is here as well, giving the high fat diet a go. I mentioned right off the top that 2016 was was an absolutely huge year for you, you know, a, a real standout, and I would say that a lot of that has to do with the Olympics. However, I want to know, let, give me a bit of a preface. So, going into the Olympics, the months leading up, the competitions, the workouts, those sorts of things, how did that end up in into your olympic story yeah so i basically 2016 for me was a year where it was okay let's follow around some of the best guys in the world and just try to put myself in their training environment as much as possible and see what i can get out of that so i spent four months here in australia to start the year off got you know really good warm weather training in early in the year had some good races early on uh, then we came home, recouped a little bit, and then we went to Flagstaff for an altitude camp um, before our World Team Championships. So again, I was there training with guys, you know, Olympic medalists, um, day in and day out, just building that confidence that I have what it takes to to race with these guys. And uh, World Team Championships, we came away with that silver medal in Rome for the team, which was a really exciting, you know, big step for for Canadian race walking to get on that podium and and show that we're a force to be reckoned with worldwide. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, the last big prep then came in St. Moritz. We went up to St. Moritz again, which I think we've talked, I think I've talked to you, I think the last time I talked to you where I was up in St. Moritz actually. I believe so, yeah. Um, yeah, so we were, we were up there again and uh, staying in the exact same apartment as we stayed in last year just to, just so we could have something that was familiar and uh, just absolutely had the best training I've ever had. Went in with a mindset of, I wasn't too worried about how much training I was doing. I wasn't keeping track of my mileage. I was just training how I felt and 
there was days when I I would ask myself, you know, is doing an easy 10K walk this afternoon going to be physiologically beneficial or will the mental or the mental benefits I'll get from taking an afternoon off be greater? And so I found myself training a little bit less in terms of mileage, but I was so much happier and so much more relaxed. And uh, I was absolutely, I was some, I did some training PBs up there, which to do your training PBs at 1800 meters altitude, I think is a pretty good indication that you're fit. Mm. Um, so I just, the confidence was so high heading into Rio and I, I knew what I was capable of. So, um, you know, I think I surprised a lot of people with my performances, but I was certainly, they were certainly in line with what I knew I was capable of after such a good year of training. Well, well, that's a, that's a, a really good point or it leads into, into my next point. Uh, so your first race was that 20 kilometer race walk. Um, I think think that in the past you've shown that that the 50 is kind of you know your bread and butter but in that 20k race walk you got 10th overall which is you know a great placing um how did it really pan out how did that race really pan out for you and um you know ending there crossing that finish line how did it set you up for the 50k it's really interesting how things sort of ended up unfolding um as you said the 50k is totally my bread and butter but um coming into the 20 i, I knew i was pretty, pretty fit. And, uh, I'd done a, my last hard training session before coming into Rio, uh, we had done in Juiz Sephora, which was our training camp in Brazil before Rio. And I'd done a 6k tempo with then so 6k tempo, then a 1k easy, 1k hard, 1k easy, 1k hard for a total of 10k. And I'd gone 39, 30 or so. And I was, you know, I, that was one of the best 20k sessions specific 20k training sessions I'd done in, in quite some time. So I knew I was capable of, of something pretty good in, in that 20k. And uh, I just really wanted to put myself in that lead group and, and try to stay with it as long as possible. And the other big thing I was hoping to do in the, in the 20k was to help Anaki and Ben as much as I could, because I knew that for them, that was, you know, they were both pretty big metal, uh, metal potential. They'd both been training well, they both had what it took to to come away with medals if they had superb races. So my goal had been to put myself at the front, help them out if it meant grabbing their bottles for them, if they were out of reach or, you know, just doing little things to try to help them give them a good chance. And unfortunately the way the race planned out, I never, never got a chance to do that. I, I always found myself at the back of that lead group, really struggling to hold on to what was really a modest pace. The pace was never too quick. Um, so it was very frustrating that first 10 to 12 K when I knew that I should be able to hold that pace pretty comfortably. And I was struggling. Um, it was a one K circuit. Um, and it was just, there's about 50 of us together. And so there's just a lot of pushing and shoving and, and jostling for position and a lot of stopping and starting coming around the corners. So I think that acceleration and deceleration constantly was really, really taking its toll on me. Cause I'm more of a rhythm walker. And I think that shows in the fact that the 50 K is, you know, more my my specialty, whereas these guys that are have that good change of speed were able to handle the the stopping and starting a bit better. Um, so you know, as I, as the race progressed, I sort of fell off the back of that group, and over the last eight k, I basically just slowed down the least. A lot of guys ahead of me blew up, and I still slowed down, but was able to come past a lot of people. And um, unfortunately, that included coming past Ben and Anaki in the later stages of the race, and moved up to 10th, but it was a race I wasn't really happy with. And I, it was really interesting. So I wrote on Facebook, uh, after the race to my friends and family that 
you know, 10th place is an amazing result. I, I would never scoff at, at being 10th place at the Olympics, but I knew that I was capable of so much more and that I wasn't really satisfied with, with how I raced the race. Um, and it was really interesting to see the response of people that it was really hard for my friends that aren't involved in sports to understand that difference between um, the process goal and the outcome goal. So my outcome was fantastic, but I didn't hit that process that I wanted to. And it was really interesting to see how people responded to that, that idea. And a lot of people saying, oh, you can't be upset. You were 10th at the Olympics. That's amazing. It's like, it was amazing, but I didn't, I wasn't satisfied. I wasn't, I didn't feel good about it. So heading into the 50K, I really made my goal uh, to coming into the 50K. I had a great result in 10th. I didn't need another good outcome. So I really focused on that process. And I, I spent the entire week between the 20 and the 50K just convincing myself of the process I was going to commit to in that race. I'm talking to Evan Dunphy right now, who is a Canadian Olympian, a Canadian race walker. Uh, you've probably heard his name over, over the past year for sure. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard about Lanny Marchand, her double. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about recovery and recovery time between uh, her two races, the, the 10 kilometer and the marathon. Evan, you did both the 20 and the 50. What was that rest period like, and how did you make sure that you were fully recovered between the two races? It's funny. I give. I always, I was always giving Lanny uh, a bad time in Rio about her 52 and a half k double worth of performances, and and trying to make her just put little jabs when I could to to be like, oh, 52 k. That's like, you know, that's that's a day's work for me. <laughs> um, but uh, our double is a little bit easier, to be honest. Having a week between those races. Um, yeah, I can't imagine what she did off of off of 48 hours, but um, yeah, our recovery looks a lot like you know the night of the 20k race. I was on a stationary bike, trying to get some get rid of some of that lactic, and then the rest of the week was really just easy walks. Um, I got a little bit sick between the races, picked up a little bit of a cold, so a lot of a lot of the time I spent was telling myself, "Don't freak out about being sick. All that will happen if you freak out is you like delay your ability to to recover," and so I would like try to be calm, and then I find myself getting nervous about being sick, and I get mad at myself for being nervous, and then I'd have to like hit a complete reset so that I would just you know, start over from zero, and then I'd slowly get more nervous, and then get mad at myself for being nervous. And so it was, it was, a, it was an interesting week between those races, and um, luckily my, the, the little cold I picked up disappeared sort of the day before the 50K, and so I was able to sleep well that night knowing that I was healthy and ready to go, and... Um, let, I went out for, between the races, I went out for a 10K, nice little walk with our track cycling um, females that won, won bronze. They were doing a 10K run. That was, their season was over, and the big thing they wanted to do on their first day of, first off day, was go for a run. <laughs> and so I, I hopped in with them and, and walked 10K with them, and it was just such a blast to, to get to sort of hang out with these you know, other Olympians and see what kind of things you know, the fact they took joy in getting to go for a run, that was a big thing for them because they don't get to do that when they're in season. So it was really cool for me to just sit up, you know, whether it was that or sitting upstairs watching uh, watching the Olympics with other Canadian athletes, just learning that perspective of, of everyone's different sports and learning about different sports and, and how people train and the commitment people have. Um, it was just a, a week of really absorbing all of that and and trying to make as many friends as possible and stay relaxed before the 50. 
I do want to talk a little more about that. The 50K was such a, a high drama race, um, really action-packed, uh, which might sound funny to some of our non-racewalk fans here, uh, but it truly was. To set that really up, though, you're on the starting line. What are the expectations, and you know what are your overall thoughts? So as I said, I'd come in sort of really determined to stick to a process. Uh, so the outcome... I wasn't too worried about it. I kind of told myself, look, I could collapse by the side of the road at 49 and a half K. But as long as I had followed the process that I had set out for myself, I was going to be happy. And so that process looked like putting myself in the lead group and staying there for as long as humanly possible. Um, so staying on the start line, I kind of, I, well, the day before the race, I put out a little um, cheat sheet to people that had, you know, I had a lot of friends and family back home that were planning to watch race walk for possibly the first time ever. And so I put a little cheat sheet to sort of explain the rules and what to look for and how the race should unfold. And um, I said that there would be a group of about 10 athletes. There'd probably be one guy that goes off the front of the field early on. Then you'd have a small group of about 10 guys that would uh, stick together throughout most of the race, walking around 22-minute 5Ks. And that group would slowly dwindle down every sort of 5K after the halfway point. Um, if you go back and look at the race and the splits, I called that race absolutely perfectly. You had, you know, you had Johan Deniz go off the front of the field. He built up a giant lead. You had a group of 10 of us that stuck together, walking 22 O's for our 5Ks. Um, from the second half of the race, you just had that group. That group went from 10 to 9 to 8. Um, we caught Johan, and then at 35K, the race kind of started. Um, so my goal coming into the race had just been stay in that group for as long as possible, try to be one of the last guys to drop off and just see what happens. Um, so staying on the start line, that was that was what was going through my head, just stick with these guys. I want to talk a little more about uh, Denez. You said he went off really quick, and uh, he ended up paying for that big time, for sure, in the, in the race. What really struck me was... Uh, that you were there to to give him, you know, encouraging words and, and to pace him back into things. That's not really camaraderie that you see in a lot of different sports. Is that strictly a race walk thing, or or explain that to me? Yeah, it's it's funny. It, there's a couple of different sides to the story. Um, I think the best it can be very um, succinctly wrapped up in, in Mate Toth, the the eventual gold medalist after the race. He was asked about Johan, and he said something along the lines of, you know, at the, at the beginning when, when Johan went off the front, we kind of thought, well, he's the world record holder. If he can hold that pace, none of us can beat him anyways, but there's a 50% chance he's going to fall down at some point. And he's very well known for this kind of tactic. Um, I've raced him three or four times now, and I think every single time he's ended up on the ground at some point in the race. So he's... He's very dramatic, um, to say the least. And so when we saw him standing on the side of the course um, at 26K or something like that, I don't think anyone was too surprised. Um, however, at that point in the race, I had found myself off the front of that lead group uh, walking by myself. So when I saw Johan at the side of the road, I, I kind of saw this as an opportunity to have someone to walk with. Um, so when I came by and patted him on the back and said, hey, let's go, Yes, it was, you know, it was a nice thing to do and it was a good sign of camaraderie. But on the flip side, it was also me saying, hey, help me. Let's drop these guys behind us and work together. Um, so it's a lot more, it was a lot more selfish than it was <laughs> in, in, 
initially perceived as, I'd say. Um, but, uh, you know, he held on to, to finish eighth in that race, which was pretty spectacular when you see everything he went through and, and the resolve he had to, to get to the finish line was pretty incredible. Um, but he definitely, yeah, I was definitely more looking for him to help me out than I was hoping that he would get back in and still end up beating me. Perhaps one of the biggest stories um, of the Olympics, perhaps from a Canadian perspective, um, happened in the last kilometer. I want you to, to really put me in your shoes here. Uh, what happened between you and that Japanese race walker? Do you even remember a lot of it? So going into the race, so, you know, I've caught Johan. I'm at the front of the race. He tries to come with me. He doesn't last very long. So at 28K, I find myself off the front of the field in the Olympic Games thinking, holy crap, what do I do now? Um, I, I was too far ahead of the group to sort of slink back and let them catch back up. I had kind of committed already. And uh, so I looked at my coach around 30K and I, I looked at, at Jerry and I kind of yelled across the sidelines to him. I said, this is either going to pay off majorly or I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> and I said it with this giant smile on my face, which afterwards he was asking me like what was going through my head there. And it was just sort of, there was that nice sense of of uh, accomplishment in that I was I was still sticking to that plan. I was so committed to that plan of of putting myself in a position I'd never been in before. So I kept forged ahead. I kept trying to I kept I, you know I tried to win the race from 25k, which is always a terrible terrible tactic. And by 40k, the the group of three guys that were left in that lead group had caught me and and, and gone past me. Uh, so I 40k. I find my, I find myself in fourth place. Fifth place is pretty far behind. I felt decent enough that I could hold the pace I was going. So I spent a couple of K just feeling sorry for myself, just thinking, oh, you know, fourth place, that's that's pretty good. Like, you know, that's pretty amazing. Just get through this next 10K. Um, at about 44, 45K, I kind of had this moment of, hold on a second. You told yourself you're going to come here and fight at the front of the field for as long as possible, even if you didn't get to the finish line. So what are you doing sitting back here in fourth place, feeling sorry for yourself, put your head down and go catch those guys. And so I basically started my finishing kick 5k out hmm. and was about 15 seconds down on Hiroki uh, at the 45k mark. And by 49k, I, I was side by side and we were in a battle for third. That 4k in between there, the only thing that kept me going was telling my body, just go one more step, just go one more step, just go one more step. So I had this very internal focus. When Hiroki and I caught up to one another, uh, both of us were absolutely exhausted. We, I tried to go right past him. He tried to respond. For whatever reason, he switched from the outside to the inside and went to pass me, and we just got a little bit too close to each other. We got tangled up and the only thing I can really remember from this moment is my brain going from this very next step, next step, next step to the bump happening, my brain going, oh, hey, what's going on? Like becoming very, from that very internal leg focused drive to sort of a greater awareness and, and sort of a, my consciousness kind of like kicked back in. I was kind of like, oh, hey, what's happening? Mm-hmm. And as soon as I did that, um, my legs sort of took that as a cue to say like, oh, hey, we're done. We can shut off now. And it's really funny because when I go back and watch that video of 
us bumping and I last about 10 steps before my knees sort of buckle and people use that as a, oh, well, he's clearly faking it. Like, look how long after the, the bump that he actually like stumbled. Like he just knew he was going to lose and, you know, he's, he's faking it. Um, so it's always really funny to see because I watch that video and I go, oh, yeah, I can totally see why people think that. Like it totally looks like that. But then when I can remember back to that moment and how it actually felt and it was just literally my legs going, hey, we're done. We can shut off now. And I, then my, my knees sort of buckle and there's a little part where you can see me looking down at my legs, sort of shaking my arms at my legs. And it was literally me going, no, come on, legs. I need you. We got one more K. <laughs> just give me four more, like four and a half more minutes. That's all I need you for. Um, you know, it's really funny how that whole incident maybe lasted five seconds, five to 10 seconds, yet every piece of it is, I can remember and, and, and replay in my head as if it was an hour long spectacle. Um, but, but uh, yeah, to make a long story short, so that that happened, Hiroki went on to, to finish third and I held on for fourth and um, was never really too upset. I thought I'd, I had achieved my process. I had, I had fought hard all the way to the end. Um, fourth place was better than I was post expected to do. And, um, you know, I was, I was pretty overjoyed, um, even, even coming across the line. What I, I really remember from that race is, is after the bump, uh, you know, watching you and, and kind of yelling at the, at the TV because you looked in really bad shape. You, you know, your knees were, were bucking all over the place and, uh, it looked like you were on the, on the verge of collapse probably for the rest of that race. Uh, I have to think that was probably, it was probably a fairly defeating feeling, uh, after that, uh, knowing that you weren't going to come in third, what really got you to that finish line? Cause like I said, you looked, you looked pretty rough. I don't actually... There's parts of that last kilometer that I don't remember at all. And, and uh, you know, I think I, I, I thought I remembered it as like we had this bump. I, I became distraught and then like just, you know, basically did what I had to do to get to the finish line. Um, but when I go back, when I went back and looked at my splits on my watch, um, my last 2K um, was still quite quick. Like I didn't really slow down that much in that final kilometer despite that bump or not as much as I thought I would have. I thought I would have lost like 30 seconds or something like that. Um, so it's really interesting to, to watch that video and, and see how different I look and how exhausted I look when I actually see how I didn't slow down too much. Um, it sort of made an it gave me an interesting perspective on, on the difference between how I felt and what was actually happening. Um, but, uh, what was I saying? Um, I, I think you, you mentioned that the idea that, that feeling of, I'm not going to come third, um, which is something that never actually crossed my mind. It was, you know, it was in the, such a, a minor part in that whole, in that whole last couple of kilometers where, um, really the driving force behind that finishing kick was to satisfy that desire to leave it all on the table, to, to get to the finish line with nothing left. And um, I think as evidenced by the video of me crossing the finish line, um, I, achieved, I achieved that. And I think whether that had been first, second, third, fourth, 
20th or last place, I think I was going to be pretty, pretty happy with my performance. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think that the, the story really started to take shape afterwards. I mean, there was an appeal put out uh, by our people. Um, I believe it was approved initially, but turned down on appeal. You had the option to go for it, and, uh, and you didn't. Talk to me a little bit about that. So I come across the finish line. I collapse to the ground. I stupidly tell them that I want to go through the, meet, the mix zone. Um, they start to hobble me through the mix zone when I'm grabbed by our coaching staff and told, there's no way you're going through the mix zone right now. Go to the medical tent and, and like rest for five minutes. Um, so as we were going to the medical tent, um, I, was, I was told that there had been you know, been an incident, and at this point in time, I, I didn't remember what had happened. I, people had told me that there was an incident, and I like vaguely remembered something happening, but I wasn't. I couldn't have. I couldn't have told you like what had happened. Um, so I just said like, look, I'm putting this in your guys' hands. I can't make decisions right now. You guys do what you think is best, and I'll, I'll make my decisions when I can. And. So part of the story that, that gets mixed up is that we actually never filed, Canada never filed an appeal. Hmm. Um, the the on-course, the, the track referee made a judgment call of disqualifying um, Hiroki after, after reviewing the video without us ever putting in an official protest or appeal. Um, so that's why after the Japanese appeal was successful, we were able, we had the right to further appeal. Um, I don't think had we appealed and then they appealed, I don't think we would have had the right to appeal again, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but because the initial decision came from the track referee, uh, that gave us that ability to, to appeal. But uh, to take a step back, it, so I spent about four, uh, an hour or so in fourth place. Um, I got healthy in the medical tent. I went and did my, went and talked to the media a little bit, tried to be as coherent as possible. Um, and then I realized, oh crap, I should go see my friends and family that are still here. And so it was the moment I was walking across the, I was walking across the track to go see my friends and family. And the scoreboard above the finish line switched from fourth to third. Mm -hmm. And um, like all of my family and friends like burst out cheering and celebrating and I was with Naki uh, Gomez at the time and, and I sort of looked at him and said you know this doesn't feel like I didn't feel anything mm -hmm. that joy and jubilation that should come with winning a medal which is something I dreamed about since I was nine years old um, wasn't there and so that was really my first indication that's that this wasn't sitting right with me. Um, nevertheless, I had to go over to friend and family and play the role of being super excited and and, and trying to, you know, trying to be excited about it because still not really sure what what's going on. Um, but they it, the thing I felt the worst about is that, the, that we didn't do our on-course uh, flower ceremony mm -hmm. because we knew that the results were unofficial. And so for Mate and Jared, who went one, two, I felt awful for them that they didn't get to do this ceremony at the race course um, because of what had happened. And I, 
I remember that being one of the things that stuck with me the most at the time was like how bad that felt to be, you know, ruining that moment for them. Um, but uh, I went back to, I got back in a, in the, in the car, I went back to the village and it was on my way back to the village that we found out. So this is about three hours after the race mm-hmm. that we found out that the Japanese appeal had been successful and that I was back in the fourth. And then the frenzy of Canadian Olympic Committee lawyers and coaching staff all telling me how to file an appeal to CAS and what the next steps are. And um, basically just with Anaki's help was able to tell people that give me half an hour. This is my decision to make. Um, you know, nobody else is making this, this, this decision for me. And so I was able, I got some food in me. I went and watched the replay of the video. I went and talked to my coach and, and pretty much knew right off the bat that I didn't want a further appeal that, that it just didn't, it didn't feel right. I was happy being fourth again. It was, that it just had that feeling like it was the right thing to do. And it was a really easy decision to make in the end. It's, it, I would say that that uh, what happened even after that was uh, has got to be pretty unnerving, uh, you know, for any athlete, uh, but especially a race walker who probably hasn't seen a ton of media response to to what you do. I mean, uh, Cam Cole uh, edit, editorialized that no appeal needed. Evan Dunphy showed us the best of the Olympics. Uh, Ron McLean uh, ended up ended up talking to you uh, as well. You know. You were everywhere on the on the front cover of the of the Toronto Star uh, sports page, which I believe some some people attached to that organization said would probably never happen. How did you deal with that sort of media outpouring? Yeah, it was it was you know the funniest moment for me came the evening of the race when uh, uh, Matt Gentes, our, our one of our media guys uh, at Athletics Canada, sent me a message saying people want like people want to hear from you like you. you can you like write us a little like statement? And I kind of laughed and went, what are you talking about? What people like nobody? Cause I didn't have, I barely had my phone with me. I wasn't really checking social media. I hadn't seen, I didn't even know that CBC had shown the race. Um, and so I, I just sort of laughed and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like nobody cares. And he's like, no, like you need to go, like you need to, you need to say something. It's like, okay, like give me 15 minutes. And I went up to, went up to my, my apartment and, sat down and wrote out that, that statement that I ended up writing out and got Ben Thorne, my other teammate, to proofread it and make sure it made sense. And we, uh, we sent it off to Matt and Matt replied back saying, okay, do you, want, do you want us to post this on Athletics Canada's website or do you want to post it on your own website and we'll link to it? And I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. Just post it on your website. And I found out a few months later that that had received over 100,000 hits. Hmm. And could have been very, very good <laughs> web traffic to send through my website. <laughs> so regretted that a little bit. Um, but that was really when I first learned that, pe- that people have been watching. Um, and then as the day, un- uh, that evening unfolded and I had people like our, sh- our chef de Michon, uh, Kurt Harnett, come up to me and, um, you know, someone of his amazing athletic uh, pedigree telling me how much his, my performance meant to him. Uh, and then to see the same thing from people, like I think the biggest thing was the next morning after my interview with Ron McLean, uh, Clara Hughes came up to me and we had this really long talk about the impact of, of sport and, and what something, what a moment like 
like my moment has the power to do. And, you know, for someone like Clara, who is a role model in every sense of the word and, and someone that, uh, you know, I'm so proud to call it a, a Canadian teammate of mine, um, that, that was life changing for me to see the, um, the respect that I was getting from these other legends of Canadian sport that I never expected would even, you know, know my name. Um, that was, that's been the coolest thing out of all of us. So my perspective on things, um, I would say that before all of this happened is that the race walkers didn't get a whole lot of respect in, in the track and field community as you know, on, on the whole, maybe, maybe I'm pushing that a little bit, but I don't think too, too much. However, after that, I think that I noticed, uh, in the people I've talked with and the things that I've read that things really changed as far as that go, uh, goes. And, and there was a lot more respect for your sport and, and what you guys were doing. Did you notice anything like that? Um, you know, where all of a sudden race walking was taken pretty seriously in Canada? Absolutely. I mean, um, I think that that 50k race did so much good for the sport. Um, not only did you have it was a close race. You had less than a minute separating the top four guys. You had I'm confident in saying that nobody in the top four is a drug cheat. Um, you, know, you didn't have that to deal with. You didn't have. You had a good clean race. You had uh, you had Johan who who had a stomach ulcer explode inside of him midway through the race, hmm. somehow hold on to, to finish that race. Um, there's so much out of that positive out of that race. Um, I, it's having the finish line video of everyone coming across the finish line and just collapsing straight to the ground. You know, it gave people, it gave people a sense of, okay, this looks funny, but these guys are working their asses off. And, that's all we've ever really wanted, you know, for people to understand the physiological requirements of the event. Yes, it looks funny, and we're never going to change the fact it looks funny. And, and, but for people now to be able to disassociate that and not see, not associate looking funny with being easy um, has been a huge change for us. Um, I'd say before Rio... Uh, most Olympics, you'd see about 60% of comments after a race walk or during a race walk be negative. Um, I'd say 60 to 70% of comments would be negative. I think in that 50K and, and after that 50K, I saw a complete reverse in that, about 70 to 80% of the comments I received being wholly negative, or sorry, wholly positive about the event, which was more than I could ever have dreamed of doing for the event um, in, a, in an entire career, let alone you know, my first Olympics. So I was thinking about this, about bringing new people to the sport, um, you know, a race like that where it really catches people's attention, people's attention. But uh, here I am sitting in probably one of the more densely populated areas of the country of southwestern Ontario, and I don't even know a single person or a coach that I would go to to learn that technique. Oh, what do you think is, is it, what's, what's it going to take to make race walking a more mainstream event? Yeah, you know, that's a, a question I've asked myself a lot. And, um, you know, I, I think in BC, at least, we're seeing a bit of a, a groundswell um, and, and we're becoming a pretty established 
little group of, we got a ton of high school kids in our group now. And, um, you know, I think like anything, you need a program, you need, you need coaches, you need a program and you need people that are willing to invest in that program. And, you know, I definitely want to make it my mission, um, when I'm done with the competing side of track and field, uh, to make sure that, that what we've accomplished, um, through, you know, race walk West and, and the, the current generation of race walkers doesn't get lost, doesn't end with us. Um, you know, my biggest accomplishment in sport would be to coach the kid that breaks my records. Um, so I think that's really what it takes is that you need that, you need a, you need a system and, and we're slowly, slowly building that system. And, uh, you know, we're building it pretty well in BC and, and hopefully if we can keep momentum going that we can get a few kids interested and, in different parts of the country and find a few coaches who are willing to teach them the technique. And, uh, the other big thing you need is opportunity. So one of the reasons BC is such a hotbed is because we have opportunity. We have race walk as part of the BC high school championships. Um, so you're exposed to it in the high school program. It's part of the junior development program. So there's always opportunities, um, with the track club I coach every single one of those kids has tried race walk at some point. Um, so exposure and opportunity, I think, are also quite a big thing. And, you know, if we could one day get race walking in OFSA, then I think you'd see a whole lot of, of, of kids coming up to the event um, in Ontario. So it's just about finding that, getting enough of a base where we can justify that. You talk about opportunity, and I have to say that probably such a big opportunity for you is to have guys like Ben Thorne, who, of course, medaled at a, uh, at a world championship, uh, and you have Anaki Gomez, who I would say is, is probably you know just on that door. You guys have been kind of trading records back and forth. What's it like to train with those guys on a daily basis, and you know how has it helped you uh, to push to be better? It's been great. Uh, you know, Naki and I have trained together for over 10 years now. And um, um, Ben's come, Ben came along a few years after that. And to, it's, such a, it's, it's such a healthy competition in training. You know, you're always, always sort of pushing each other to, to do better without overdoing it. Um, the one nice thing this year has been that so Matt Bilodeau, our other 50K walker who was in Rio, uh, he's moved to Vancouver now to train with us, and so it means that when Anaki and Ben go off and do their their 25k walks at a pace that is ridiculously quick, when I'm doing my easy 40 to 45k training walks, I'll have some company with Matt and not get swept up in and trying to stick with Ben and Anaki while they go off and walk a you know a 150 to 155 25k session, uh, and then leave me to do an extra 15k at the end. Hmm. Um, so it's definitely nice now to have another 50K guy in that group to have someone to do the longer stuff with. But um, it's, it's great with Anaki and Ben and myself because we all have different talents in training. So Ben can absolutely crush the speed stuff. You know, any of the short speed, he can dominate us. And then any of the longer walks, I can, you know, I can hold my own and be the one sort of dictating what's going on. And for those harder, longer tempo-y type sessions, yeah, that's where Naki really shines. So it's really good to have that because you're always having someone, you know, in those sessions where you're the weakest, you always have someone pushing you. It's not like you all have the same strengths. Um, so I think that's really helped our group in terms of uh, improving on in all areas of training. 
you talk about Ben being the uh, the speedier one, but may I bring up the uh, the result from the BC Cross Country Championships, though? <laughs> and uh, I believe that uh, out of all the race walkers, you were the one who took first in that. Um, talk to me about uh, you know switching over to the dark side or the light side or whichever way you see it, uh, and trying some running things. You also had a half marathon in there. Uh, talk to me about that experience. Yeah, it was a, it was a ton of fun. Um... Before Rio, we had talked about wanting to run cross country champs as a, as a team, uh, just to, just you know for something different uh, at the end of the season. So um, I think I was probably the only one who was doing any bit of actual running training for it, hmm. um, which probably helped. I think Ben went on two runs before, and it showed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. But I've been doing all my running on the roads. So when I got into that cross-country course, I just felt like I was bouncing all over the place, and I felt so inefficient. So I wasn't really—I was pretty discouraged about how I felt in that run. And I thought, okay, no, I'm—I'm not satisfied with this. I need to find a road race to do. I need to get—you know—that's where I—that's where I'm good. That's what I need to do. So the the fall classic was that first week in November, and so I just sort of was like, okay, that's that's a good one. I'll I'll sign up for that and go do that and see what I can do over half marathon and. I had signed up because uh, one of the track cycling girls, Jasmine Glacier, had, was doing the 10K. And so we were in Ottawa in early November, and she was set, we were, going, we had up, we were up for a run. And she said, oh, you should do the, the Fall Classic, the, do the half marathon. We can like, make a bet on it. And so we had a little bet about whether or not I could run double her time for the half that she does for the, for the 10K. Um, and you know, that was really the only reason I decided to rock up and, and run that half marathon. And, <laughs> um, Two days before, I was like, okay, crap, I have to run a half marathon. I should make sure, you know, I should figure out what pace I'm going to run this at. So I went out and ran a 10K in 34.0 something just to be like, okay, that pace feels like I could, I could probably do tw- two of those. I'll, I'll aim for around that. And you know, so probably not the best taper for a half marathon to go and run a hard 10K two days before. But um, it, was, it was a good confidence boost. And so I rocked up the half and was at the front of the race and asked the guy next to me what he was trying to do. And he's like, oh, I'm trying to break 110. I was like, oh, that's really fast. He's like, I'll try to pace you for the first 10K and then you can like, I'll die and you can like take off. And so I was sort of running in front of him, trying to break the wind for the first first little bit. And six, six or seven K into the race, I felt like I was edging away from him. And I was like, huh, maybe I could run this thing on my own. And I kind of picked it up and PB through the first 10K. I think I ran like 33, 18 or something like that. And I was like, ooh, this could be a really scary second half of this race. And second half, I think I ran even quicker. I think I went 33-0 something for the next 10K. So I was, I, was pretty, I was pretty happy with myself. And then to see the amount of media coverage that race got, it was, it was stupid. It was, you know, probably the most, most talked about 111 half marathon <laughs> that's ever existed. It was more coverage than I've ever gotten outside of the Olympics for anything. And I know a bunch of the runners uh, were giving me some healthy flack about that. Uh, I ran into Chris Winter about four or five times over the next 10 days. And every time we were together, someone would bring up that half marathon. He would just look at me and start laughing. And yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty ridiculous, but it's pretty cool to, you know, even get some respect from Canadian running magazine, which traditionally hadn't, been giving me much respect, um, despite having, uh, I noticed this year that uh, after Rio, they, they changed their tune a little bit and were a bit more receptive to race walking, which was awesome to see. And 
actually, I should I should note that Canadian running magazines top top two read articles for the year were both about race walk. So I thought that was that was some nice irony for the year. Well, that that seems this seems like a good time to uh, to bring up your sponsorship situation. Then, um, you know, you've gotten all this media coverage. Uh, you had such a fantastic year in 2016, but you are no longer with Asics. Can you talk about that a little bit and uh, and maybe give some thoughts on it? Yeah, and, and um, you know, the initial caveat is that there's a lot of us that are no longer at Asics. Um, a number of athletes have been dropped. It wasn't like I was the only one. Um, but you know, it was, it was a, it was a really discouraging thing because, um, so how things ended up playing out was in in October, I had sent them a proposal for a contract, and I don't have an agent. I do this all, you know, on my own or through Anaki's help because he's a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, so he knows how to draft contracts and stuff. So, you know, I was trying to do this stuff on my own. I'd sent them a proposal. They had said, "Great, we'll, uh, you know, we're heading to some meetings now. We'll talk in early October." I thought, great, that's that sounds awesome. That's a good confidence boost. All right, I'll wait till early October. Early October comes around, I start messaging them, don't hear back. End of or early November, send some send some emails like, hey, can we chat? Don't hear back. November, December comes along, I think, okay, this is getting ridiculous. Uh, emailed Japan headquarters saying, is there a reason I'm being ignored? And didn't hear anything back in Canada, so I sent another email two weeks later to. Japan again, and then I finally heard back from the Canadian people saying, you know, this is about a week before Christmas, um, saying, oh, you know, we actually can't support you anymore. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I emailed back saying, okay, you know, that's fine. I understand that, you know, I was hoping to get like a proper contract, but that's fine. What about, you know, is it possible that we just do another gear-based, um, gear-based thing like we did last year? And they responded, no, we can't even do that. We might be able to give you a pair of shoes um, to get you through part of 2017. Hmm. And it was just the way that it was done. And, uh, you know, to in the initial email to have the thank you for everything you've done for our company, but we can no longer support you in the same sentence um, was so insulting because, you know, you give your un unwavering loyalty uh, to a company, which I did to ASICS. I was, you know, a hundred percent just over the moon. They were the first company that was willing to, to, to support me. And, you know, I, I was willing to almost like a relationship, you know, a relationship when you're with somebody that you, you're unwaveringly loyal to them that you don't realize how bad things are. Hmm. And you don't realize that, yeah, being ignored, email after email isn't good and you know never when I look back on it now I can see that yeah I was never really getting the same out of it as I was putting in um, we had gone to Japan and helped them uh, do research on shoes we had done all this stuff at uh, which was partially at our, at our own expense and um, just blinded by the fact that they were the first company that was ever willing to support me to realize that they weren't actually supporting me as, as well as I thought they were. Um, so the whole thing was rather unfortunate. And then, of course, because it's now December 20th, um, I'm, I can't go emailing companies day, a couple days before Christmas. So 
come January, I started trying to email some companies. But of course, every company fills their roster for twenty for the next year in the previous year. So by the time January comes around, everyone's already filled up, and I find myself uh, on my own, which has been you know quite discouraging. And the worst part, of, I think, of all of it is that they did this a week before I left for Australia. So I, of course, have to come to Australia with all of my ASIC stuff that I feel ashamed to be wearing. Mm-hmm. So it's been been very eye-opening um, the whole to the, the whole world of sponsorship and I, a few people have, have you know given me flack about you know oh you know getting dropped happens and, and you, you shouldn't be upset about it and I think what it comes down to is like not being upset about being being dropped and I, I understand that companies are a business and if I'm not returning you know value for them that I, that there's there's no purpose for them to support me but uh, it's more the way in which we were treated. Um, and I know a bunch of the other athletes who were dropped feel the same way, that they just weren't treated like people in the whole process. And it's it's very frustrating. So going through all that, um, I know that Nate Brennan was, was also dropped, um, for those who don't know, fantastic 1,500-meter runner uh, by, by Sockney. He tweeted something uh, out pretty much, you know, within a couple of days saying something about the beer mile and, and how some people are getting sponsored in that sport, but, you know, Olympians are being dropped. Do you have a similar outlook or, or how do you view that? What it comes down to is what kind of value can you offer a brand? And, uh, you know, so I, I see the value of the beer mile because people are paying attention to it. And, and you know, so that works and that's great. Um, what I think some companies don't do a good job of is understanding is understanding the value that, that some Olympians have. Um, you know, for me personally, um, you know, I, I do think that I have a story now that is that is worth aligning with. You know, I think there I think it's something that a lot of companies could could see themselves supporting. Um, and I've gotten in. You know, I'm now going into the schools and, and doing presentations to elementary and high school kids and um, so in a couple months after Rio I, I, I talked to over a thousand um, elementary school kids in the lower mainland in BC and um, I think some companies have gotten too uh, too focused now on social media and you know if you don't have 10,000 followers you're you're not valuable um, where they fail to see the effect that a lot of Olympians have in a small community, and you know, the a lot of these, a lot of us can have such a big impact in a small space, and that can sometimes be just as valuable as having, you know, a tiny drop of impact in a large space. And I, I think companies, you know, marketing metrics and all that stuff are have lost a bit of that in this in, in there and. There are a lot of Olympians I know that don't deserve sponsorship because they don't do anything. They they go out and run on the track, and that's about all they ever do. And um, you know, for those people, I can understand their, the lack of value. But there are also a lot of Olympians who are highly visible in their community, doing uh, community work, coaching, um, tons of different things. And that value, I think, gets overlooked and underestimated a lot of the time. Well, I was actually just having this conversation with uh, with someone the other day, and uh, if you think of something like the Speed River example, I don't know how familiar you are with them, but uh, very strong connections to New Balance with that group, 
and a lot of their athletes are sponsored either through gear or through you know a combination of gear and, and some money on the side but if you look around Guelph and even further from around there uh, you see that even a lot of you know your your part-time runners are wearing new balances is, is that kind of the the direction that, that you're thinking I think so I, I think that has and and new balance is a a fantastic company and um, I would love to work with them um, if they're listening please sponsor me um, because they do so much more community stuff um, you know their their shoe giveaways that their athletes do um, giving away their old pairs of shoes to, uh, to different charities and you know that sort of stuff that aligns perfectly with that small uh, that large impact small space idea um, I think they do a fantastic job of that. And um, yeah, those Speed River guys, you know, a lot of them I know do stuff outside of just running. Um, they're, they're, they're out in the community helping out and doing stuff like that. And I think that's, that really helps and, and should be taken into great consideration. Um, what always annoys me is when athletes say, oh, I, can't, I need to focus on, I can't do that. I need to focus on training. You know, I've heard that used. I've heard that use it, use it as an excuse for why they don't read selection criteria. Hmm. And that just boggles my mind. Um, you know, I was just scrolling through Twitter today and I saw Jasmine Sawyer. She's a British long jumper. She's also a law school graduate and she appeared on The Voice last night hmm. uh, in the UK. And it's just like, you know, the idea that all you have time for is training is such a fabrication um, that anyone that tries to use an excuse for not doing community work or volunteering, um, uh, it just, it baffles me really. So while this was all happening, um, there was, uh, there was big trouble at the OK Corral, the OK Corral being Athletics Canada, um, mm -hmm. when they let go of head coach, uh, Peter Erickson. Now, I think that it would be fair to say that he was a fairly polarizing character with uh, some people like Paralympian Jeff Adams uh, coming out on his side. And uh, there was quite a few people on the nay side as well. He he, he ended up getting dropped uh, through explanation because people didn't feel like he was supporting them. Um, again, I said he's he's very polarizing, but I thought that you had a very good outlook on things because you kind of took the good sides and the bad sides, and and you you saw him as an actual person with flaws, but as as a good person. Talk to me about Peter Erickson and his relationship to the race walk team. Yeah, you know that whole the whole last couple of months have been really interesting for me because uh, Peter, you know, Peter in my mind is a great guy. I have a great relationship with Peter. Um, I consider us friends, and you know we've we talk we would talk a lot um, about all things athletics and he was he was the first head coach we've athletes kind of ever really had that took an interest in race walk um, our previous head coach never really knew my name I think he I think I was introduced to him six or seven different times um, as the first time we've met um, whereas Peter when he came on board 2014 World Cup he said he was coming we said Oh wow! Okay, um, that's never happened before. Um, he showed up. He came to the World Cup. He sat us down beforehand individually and said, "All right, what are your goals?" And we very casually said, "We want to fight for a team medal, and we want to all finish in the top 16." And 
this is what we're going to do to do that. And he kind of thought, oh, these guys are idiots. Like, they have no, like, I think just how casual we were being about this and how lofty those goals actually were. I think he thought, oh, geez, what have I done? And when the race started, so he was, on the, he was actually on the drinks table giving us our, our bottles. Um, you know, he wasn't just on the sidelines watching. He was actually part of, he was, he wanted to be in the thick of it. He wanted to be in the fray. And so he was out there giving us our bottles. And I, I could tell for the first couple laps as, you know, we were sort of sitting back, we were sort of mid-pack, probably in the 30 to 40th positions, that Peter was just sort of casual, hanging at our bottles, kind of thinking, oh, this was a waste of time. Hmm. As the race progressed, and we found ourselves all well under Canadian record pace and moving through the field, Peter's excitement got very, very visible to the point where you could see him on the drinks table yelling at us and screaming and cheering and um, you know, handing out the bottles with a hundred times more vigor than he had before. And um, that race, we ended up coming 11th, 12th, and 13th, and we finished fourth as a team, one point off the medal, and we all shattered the Canadian record. And um, from that moment on, Peter was kind of like, okay, you guys do what you say you're going to do. Now tell us, you, now all you have to do is tell us what you need to get there and we'll support you. Um, so really from that moment, we had a great relationship as the race walking group because Peter believed in us and, and seen our value. Um, it helps that we've, you know, since then have routinely, uh, have put guys in the top eight at, at major international events, um, which helps the bottom line with on the podium. Um, but anyway, so I, I always saw what people said about Peter and, and, and I always saw, I, always, I knew that not many people, not many other athletes had the same relationship we had with Peter. Um, but I never really realized how bad it actually was. I, I knew there's a few specific athletes that were very vocal. Um, but I assumed everyone else was in the middle and so once, once he was, he was let go and, and talking to more athletes, um, talking to some of the para athletes and, and learning that so many more people were on the opposite side towards the opposite side of the spectrum as we were, um, was really surprising to me, but, um, it did help give me some perspective on why the decision was made. And, you know, it doesn't change how I feel about Peter as a person, you know, I, I can only speak to how my relationship was with him. But if things were how they, you know, how they sounded and, and um, I can understand completely why a decision was made to, to, to move on and, and to part ways. I do want to touch uh, just on, on one more thing, and that is uh, before 2016 and all this media blow up and all that sort of stuff, you did have a little bit of fame. It was Let's Run fame, but it's still fame all the same as a doper vigilante, uh, a guy looking out uh, to see what's happening in that world. I haven't heard from you on that run in a little while. Are, are you still uh, going through pictures and, and, uh, and trying to find out who's, uh, who's cheating the system? Yeah, you know, it's... It, it, you kind of learn. It was really nice after Rio. Coming into Rio, I, I still did. I did a, a bit of media, and I would always come on, and they would want to talk about the doping thing, and I talk about the doping, and at the very end of the interview, they'd say, "Oh, by the way, like, how's your training going? Like, what are you trying to do in Rio?" And I was always like, "Oh God, can't we like flip the script?" And so it's really nice that this is your last question um, because it's it shows that we've actually been able to flip the script, and I can now talk about 
Evan the athlete, and the footnote is is Evan the the anti doping crusader. <laughs> um, but it things have been you know been interesting. I since the stuff came out with the with me and a few of the other guys tracking down the Russians competing while banned and all that stuff. You know, the IWF's done nothing about that. Those athletes have not been um, punished for competing while banned and, and nothing. And they're all back now training and racing in Russia. Um, so it's really discouraging to see the lack of impact that but that actually had. And, and it became really easy to just sort of stop the involvement. Um, there's been other things. So one of the, the Ukrainian girls who was winning a bunch of medals um, a couple years ago, she was nowhere this year, and she had posted something on, on her Russian Facebook about overcoming adversity, and she'll be back stronger than ever, and da 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 And there had been some suggestion that she, she was serving a doping ban. It just didn't, it was just, that just wasn't public. Mm-hmm. And so I reached out to uh, Hajo Sepulter, uh, the, the documentary filmmaker from Germany, um, to say, hey, like, I don't know how to look into this, but this is what I've heard. Um, like, can you, do you want to look into this? And he replied back saying, oh, we're too busy. If you can send me the contact details for someone at the Ukrainian anti-doping agency, then I'll look into it. I was like, well, no, that's, I can't do that. That's why I'm coming to you for help. Um, so just to see, yeah, that it became very discouraging to see how little impact, um, that effort was having and, has honestly just become easier to sort of step aside a little bit from it and, and try to focus more on uh, my own thing. And, and uh, I took on the role of BC athlete rep for BC Athletics. And so, you know, trying to focus more on that, on, on sort of the positive side of the sport and making our sport, you know, a little bit better at home rather than the doping stuff because it just became, it became tedious and unenjoyable for me to, to talk about because of how little action I was seeing being done. I did lie. I do have one more question, and uh, that's <laughs> simply 2017 question mark. Yeah, uh, 2017 shaping up to be, you know, a pretty fun year. Um, I'm working very hard on establishing some life balance. So 2016 was all about the Olympics. Everything I did was Olympics, and I spent 10 weeks over the 10 months prior to the Olympics at home. So I was away most of the year, and um, it just wasn't sustainable um, to live life that way. So 2017 has been about finding a bit of balance, uh, moving out of my parents' house, getting a part-time job, um, just doing some little things to, to try to bring some stability to life and, and training. Um, I mean, I say that while I'm in Australia for <laughs> two months. So it's, you know, it's... It, baby steps but um yeah so 2017 shaping up i I got race in adelaide here in early february or sorry end of february i guess and um then i'll head over to mexico for a few races um before we have our pan am we have a pan am race walk cup in peru in may so that'll be like our first big one that we'll try to be going in winning winning the team the team title for that um but then after that everything's world champs just gearing up for for world champs and unfortunately right now because we don't have a head coach we don't have criteria for world champs so we don't know i don't know if i'm gonna have to race the 50k before then <laughs> uh or so that 
some of the competition skip plans are up in the air. I'm, I'm training for a 50K. I'm training to be fit uh, at the end of March for a 50K um, should I need to do one. So, you know, just banking on the possibility of having to do one and, and we'll go from there. But really, world champs is the big goal, the big peak. Try to win a medal there. And, um, you know, I think as a brand for my story, winning a medal at world champs will keep me relevant. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it will bring everything back together of, of, you know, what, bring the story back. It would just complete a, a pretty fun 12 months um, from my end. And, and so that's really the goal is to go in there and try to be fitter, try to be stronger, try to be faster and, and see if I can come away with, uh, with the medal. He is Evan Dunphy. You can uh, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram, I believe, uh, at Evan Dunphy. Please give him a follow. He needs that extra that extra push, you know, to give the the value to the, all those sponsors out there. So please give him a follow. We're asking of you. Um, if you don't know who he is by the end of this interview, I suggest you probably go back to the beginning and and take another listen. Trust me, you'll you'll find out somewhere along there. Evan, thanks a lot for for taking the time uh, to uh, to talk to the show this week, man. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm also on Strava. If anyone wants to to follow along on my training, um, I think I'm just Evan Dunphy. I'm not really sure how to find me on there, but uh, <laughs> if you send me a tweet. I'll, I'll make sure you figure out how to follow me on Strava if you're interested. Ah, uh, it's tough though. You have everything listed as runs, so I never know when you're running or when you're walking <laughs> or. I, I, I gotta gotta email them and see if they can set up a walk, uh, an automatic walk function. Are you listed as a pro on there? Uh, I'm. I've filled out a form, so we're waiting on whether or not that form gets accepted or not. All right. Well, moral of the story is here that you should follow him on on his social media. That's uh, that's Twitter, Strava, and and Instagram. And uh, and like I said, thanks thanks a lot for for taking some time to to talk to me today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Terminal Mile. Big thanks to my guests this week, Evan Dunphy, as well as to Tracky for their ongoing support, and to you for listening. If you want to find us on the web, you can find us both on Instagram now and Twitter at the Terminal Mile. You can also find us on Tracky.ca, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Thanks again for listening. This has been the Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. (laughs) 